Okay, welcome back. Um, cheers. <laughs> I, I can already see the reviews right now. That, you know, they always ask you, is this free from commercial bias? And everyone's going, no, this was sponsored by Starbucks. <laughs> right? Um, Dr. Sag discloses that he served on the Scientific Advisory Board for Folgers. I did. I was Juan Valdez and our cousins and all that. Um, I put the, I don't know if everybody can see it from that side of the room, I put the reference up for the microbiome uh, paper that I was referring to. It's freely available. I think you can just download the PDF uh, from your um, whatever PubMed site. Uh, it is, it's one of the more fun reads in nature that you'll have. Sometimes nature gets you all tripped up and you get all, but this one, this one's really fun. Um, well, well written and well done. Okay, so we're going to focus on genotype 1 and 4, but to be honest, we're not going to spend a lot of time on 4 because a lot of what I said for 1 will apply to 4, so eh. And, and I also, <laughs> right off the bat, and I'm trying to learn how to do these particular talks more effectively, um, number one take-home point is that just use the guidelines page whenever in doubt, right? Just go, it's... it's, it's hcvguidelines.org and it is extremely easy to use in my opinion and it now goes through all kinds of scenarios including what to do what to do with a DAA resistant virus and um, all that kind of stuff and to be honest even though I do this uh, one to two half days a week uh, treat hepatitis C there are many times I'll just go gosh I can't remember what to do here and I'll just go and look it up um, so what I struggle with in presenting this, just to have some group therapy with you right now, um, is how much to focus on the data and the studies versus just the bottom line and the decision making. And I'm starting to transition away from the studies. I mean, we're trained to be evidence-based, but to be honest, the evidence for these things are so straightforward, uh, and you can find the studies pretty readily on multiple sites, including the guidelines, which are really well referenced. So if you want to see why you might use ribavirin in a certain situation or you don't in another situation. All of the data is just synthesized and put into something that's manageable on the guideline site. So what I'd like to do today, I designed this thing with a lot of data. Um, and I, to be honest, I think I'm going to shift gears and get away from that because my eyes glaze over after a while when I show a lot of data and yours probably is even worse. So let's focus on the cases and the discussion. And we'll, we'll bring everybody into this, and, and you all can ask questions about the things that you're um, unsure about or where these recommendations come from. All right, yeah, we've done this. And there's all these options, which is pretty amazing. I, I will make an editorial comment. There was a, and Michael, you can comment on whether, how, what your view of was of this, but at the beginning there were two sort of separate vectors of disciplines. There were the ID people and there were the hepatologists. And the hepatologists had much more experience treating hep C than the ID folks did. Uh, and they used a ton of ribavirin and, and interferon back in the day, and they were really good at, at creating SVR. The ID folks didn't do, engage much. When the DA started to come around, the ID folks started to re-engage or engage in hepatitis C. And I remember these incredibly, um, almost philosophical discussions about do you need exogenous interferon to clear hepatitis C when you're using a DAA? And as a rule, the hepatologist I talked to mostly said, well, we think you're going to need it. 
And the ID people said, well, no, there's probably enough endogenous interferon. But the answer really wasn't known at the beginning. So do you remember those discussions? And Yeah. And it's turned out that you really don't need the exogenous interferon, fortunately. Um, but it's like anything else in infectious diseases. When I teach house staff and whatnot, I just basically say, remember, anytime we use an antimicrobial, all we're doing is giving air support for the infantry, right? We're, we're, we can't take the hill with the drug itself. We need, the, we need the troops, the boots on the ground, right? That's the immune system. And the air support, in this case, are antivirals that stop the replication long enough to allow the immune system to naturally clear. <coughs> Pretty simple. So that's what we're doing here with whatever we're using. Here's my uh, reminder about the previrs, asvirs, I love saying that, and the buvirs, okay? And the asvirs sort of win in terms of their power. Uh, but the buvirs are really good in terms, especially sofosbuvir, the, the nucleotides in terms of their staying power uh, against resistance. And this is kind of the take-home point here. So that if you do have a 5A resistant virus, this becomes your anchor for whatever you do next. And it's tough. We don't have the right answers yet. But there are drugs coming along in development, some that are already out there a little bit, but mostly drugs in development that are likely to have much more potency against 5A resistance. Um, again, this will be in your handout. I think the other take-home point here is that a lot of these drugs are designed for one, like I said earlier, and it sort of gets four or two. Here you can get a little bit of six with Crisaprevir. For the five A's, here's a pangenotypic, although three is a little weaker than one. Um, Ledeposphere really doesn't get three very well, but it gets these other guys pretty good. Two misses out on two. Um, Elbosphere, similar. And the new one, Velpatosphere, is more of one of the first of an emerging uh, pangenotypic, a little bit more potency. I mean, the Cladosphere is good. Um, uh, Velpatosphere may be a titch more potent against uh, two and three. Uh, Sofosphere, we've already mentioned, <clears throat> and it's pangenotypic for the most part. And the uh, Sabbuvir is a non-nuke, is a non-nuke, so a little different and not going to be your anchor for failures of an NS5A, and it's pretty targeted towards uh, one. So that's the big picture landscape. Let's look at a case. Um, 53-year-old woman without significant past medical history, further evaluation of recently diagnosed HCV referred by her primary care provider, uh, no significant complaints aside from moderate fatigue, signs, no signs of end-stage liver disease, um, and her social history, remote IV dr drug use and rare alcohol use today, then comment about our coffee intake. Uh, she's got GERD and she's on a omeprazole over-the-counter. Her viral load is 2.7 million, but it's 1B better. Uh, her AST and ALT is 39 and 34. Bookmark that. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Albumin's 3.9, hemoglobin 13.1, platelet count respectable at 267. Fib 4 is 108, and I put the reminders here that the 90% prediction is above 3.25, so she's not in close to that. But if she's less than 1.45, which she is, there's a pretty good negative predictive value for it not being, she's not being. How old is she again? She's 53. So your thought? 
If I step forward. Yeah. You, you, would you biopsy her at this point? So if she ups out his normal, she, if she's okay with waiting, uh, I would not biopsy her. I, I, would, I would get Okay. So you would want some more information. Okay. And uh, she's interested, told by our PCP, treatment may not be. All right. So would you treat her? Uh, your option, no, her primary care provider is right, her liver enzymes are normal. No, I can't get the medication approved, real. Uh, yes, everyone should be treated. Yes, her fatigue is an indication and her LFTs are not normal. So it's, it, it's, there's not necessarily a single right answer. What's the line in the song from the Flintstones? Let's ride with the family down the street. Through the courtesy of the Exactly. Good one. All right. Most people will go, da na 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 You but, know what Mike and I did with our child. <laughs> That's right. Through the courtesies of Fred's two feet. That. Yeah. Just having fun with that. Let's see what we like. Okay. All right. So most people have been sort of sold on this concept. Uh, comments or thoughts? No, no, she, 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 fit four was low. She was 1.08. So the, the high would be 3.4. Sorry, the, the, these are artificial, right? So and it's a lot coming at you at once. So it's, yeah, so it's actually a very low fit four. And her platelet count's 247,000. And all right, so I think the points here are that her liver enzymes are not classic, they're not for sure normal, right? They're a little bit elevated uh, for a woman. Uh, especially. Fatigue um, in the older days, like a year and a half ago, <laughs> we used to have to write that down to get the medicines provided. I think because the DAAs are working with reduced pricing and disc, sorry rebates, um, a lot more of the payers uh, are lining up to say, okay, we'll treat everybody, but it's spotty. Um, so I think where we, where we aspire is towards answer three, but there's more that you might want. So if you do treat her, which most people in this room wanted to do, what additional testing would you get? Uh, RAV testing for NS5A, she's 1B. Uh, fibrosis staging with a transient elastography, we have our uh, expert from Salt Lake telling us that's what he would do. Specifics on our omeprazole use, nothing, I have all I need, and then these goofy one and three, blah, blah, whatever. I do that just to be annoying. Uh, go ahead and pick what you like, though. Okay, so most folks went with two and three. What about one? What about RAV testing here? The answer is for 1B, you don't typically need it because, as I'll show you in a second and I alluded to earlier, it's a two-step phase to resistance as opposed to one step, and so it's really uncommon. And so it really isn't recommended for 1B unless maybe she was previously treated, which she has not been, okay? So two and three, yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. 
Um, we definitely need the specifics on our omeprazole use for some of the drugs we're going to talk about. And the fibrosis, if you got the elastography, why not? So even at 1.08, yeah, it's a little disturbing because a lot of <laughs> a lot of the teaching that I'm doing for primary care providers, um, just true confessions here, uh, through Alabama, we're trying to expand treatment, and I'm I'm teaching that if you have something below one point whatever two or something, that it's in all likelihood not cirrhosis. So go ahead. But maybe if we choose the drugs that are also active in cirrhosis without any difference in dosing, we'll be okay. So I'm trying just to justify my existence. Five here. out of six times you're going to be right. Yeah, well, that's, that's better than I do on college football betting, that's for sure. <laughs> Boy, I had a rough week last week. Okay. All right. Um, this, I'm going to punt because these are the drug-drug interactions, but we have a world's authority here on this. I think the, what I want to focus on are acid-reducing agents for you know, the deposphere and to some degree for velpatosphere. And with apologies, I lumped them together even though there are, there are differences that Charlie's going to talk about here uh, in his talk. But I think what is true is the solubility um, is impaired or, and therefore the absorption when the pH gets above 4 to 5. And so for antacids and H2s are sort of different, and velpatosphere is okay, if I remember correctly, with, um, with H2s but not PPIs. So, Charlie, why don't you, can you help me out here a little bit? So, again, it, 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 uh, all we know are, what, are the data that have been released. And, and so what's acceptable is a, um, a promotidine dose of 40 milligrams twice a day or equivalent. Um, or um, uh, a role of, uh, of uh, 20 milligrams per day. So um, um, could you go higher than that? You might be able to, but, but there's no data. So that's what's in the package inserts, and as of right now, I would be very nervous about, about doing anything other than that. Above that. So, so Mm -hmm. And if, if you're on a PPI, it's not hard to get a pH. Above four. Says this, but just enough, right. And then there's the subtleties about administering with the dose as opposed to waiting 12 hours. So if you're going to use it at, say, omeprazole 20, not 20 twice a day, which she's on, um, then they say to give it together at the same time. Right. And the rationale, Charlie? Because it takes some several hours for the effect of the proton pump inhibitor to kick in. So probably your lowest gastric pH is the point, if you're giving a PPI once a day, your lowest gastric pH is the point at which you give the PPI. So it gives you an hour's worth of relatively lower pH. So it's just something to consider, um, and uh, it's just the nature of the drugs in their... In their How about how about uh, grapefruit juice? Not, not as good. It, it's is that right? Yeah. 
Fascinating. Okay, because uh, those of us who remember the uh, ketoconazole days or itraconazole, I forget which one, we always wanted to take it with grapefruit juice. Remember that? But I don't know if that may have been a, a SIP enzyme. So, there, yeah, there's a, there's a SIP3A inhibitor in grapefruit juice. In right. That might have been what it was. So, you know, that, that so cranberry juice, or they can just drink a Cosmopolitan, and that usually would, would do it. Yeah. Um, Coca-Cola, I remember. Yeah, that's right. Coca-Cola was the other one. I don't know what the pH is. I always heard it was acidic, but I don't know how acidic it is. Yeah. So, question for you, Michael. What about H4 hydria in people with liver disease? Have people looked at that? Do cirrhotics have H4 hydria? Yeah, I think it's a handful of patients with failure. And it's a precancerous Anyway, some, something to be worried about with with uh, one of the few things to be worried about with the combination of sabotaguerin and valpatasone. Okay, so she's taking it twice a day. She's going to do, want to do something about that, and she turns out right about in the middle of the scale for transient elastography, not the MRE, but the but the regular sort of uh, uh, transient elastography from the probe that we talked about. So 7.8 with a cut point of 12.5 roughly for above that is cirrhosis. So she really is, does not appear to be cirrhotic. Um, you remember to send all the appropriate serologies. She's had prior hep B infection, uh, but she's not surface antigen positive. So you think <laughs> based on her elastography, you can get her medicines covered. It's probably true. Would that be true at Walgreens? Not at the moment. And what they had, what insurance they yeah, that's true, isn't it? That would be bad, huh? How about CVS, same way? Sorry, I'm just pitting you guys against one another. <laughs> Having a little fun. <laughs> all right, you talk to your talk to your manager before you talk out loud. And this is all being recorded, I might add. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is it possible for the people to actually call you? <laughs> we, when we, we realize that it's usually we, get, we go to a call center, like Express Scripts, if there's a call center in Ohio, and they send you somewhere else. It's very interesting that in the call center, there's no supervisor. They have to call somebody else and then send them. In CBS, how do they get in touch with you? But do you only do you deal, do you interact with providers, or do they, you call them? Yeah, so this is a common... Yeah, there's a phone tree. Yeah. So your best advice if we have an appeal is not to call but to send a letter... What do you think? This is real helpful to us, by the way, and I hope this doesn't discourage you from ever attending another ISUSA event. Uh, 
I didn't anticipate, but I like I like the fact that we're using everybody's expertise here. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Uh huh. As far as appeals go, I know we do have separate appeals. Yeah, yeah. And I know I believe they do have call centers yeah. for that, but I think it's connected with the call center where they work in a connected way that whatever the denial is happening, yeah. that it will yeah I think we all have our stories Yeah, but I'll tell you, just the, to share the, uh, again, this turns into a group therapy session, but there was, my, my worst story, and I won't, it wasn't hepatitis C, it doesn't matter, was I timed it. It was two hours and 43 minutes with 17 transfers, and four of the numbers were exactly the same. In other words, in other words you call and they, oh, well, wait, you need to speak to so-and-so, here's their number, and then they hang up, and then you, well, I'll transfer you, and you... And I never got to anybody who could make any decisions. It was not about hepatitis C, but regardless, it, and I was just, it was a game. And I fortunately had the time where I could play the game because I was working my emails while I sat on hold for most of it. And the music, by the way, is terrible. The whole music, come on. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I skipped. I messed up. I messed up. I messed up. All right, here we go. Um, so let's come back to the case. Um, so, in an ideal world, you can get all the PBMs and all the Walgreens and CVS and even Express Scripts will, will pay for any of these, right? What would be your choice? Go ahead and vote. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic boy aboard this tiny ship. You need Thurston Howell to pay for these drugs. Um, all right, so most were soft lead. Interesting. 12 weeks. Some went with eight weeks. Nobody went with velpatosphere. Uh, some elbosphere, grisaprovir, and some with the, uh, what do we call that, the 3D. Uh, and now um, they've got this so you don't have to divide the disaprovir into twice. You can, you can give it as a long acting. So it's once, all once a day. Um, Open comments, thoughts. Let's say you're the. So I'm I'm still worried about her imeprazole. Okay. Uh, especially after hearing Michael talk, I'm more worried than I would have been yesterday. But uh, so so there are alternatives, obviously, and uh, you know, um, Elbisphere Grisaprovir has the convenience of uh, Sofosbuvir, Lodipasbuvir, but it doesn't have, or uh, Velpatasbuvir, it doesn't have the and genotypic nature, and um, um, prod has, you know, convenience, it's more pills, but, uh, you know, I, 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 why take a chance on the Omeprazole? Yeah, so I realized that our bars didn't show up, so this is 36%, yeah, which yeah, is the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. So this, this is a reasonable choice. I, this one, as we'll talk about, is what you use for 1A with cirrhosis, right? Yeah. So 
that isn't the case here. So 1B, yeah. We don't on 1B. Yeah, exactly. So that's why sometimes I keep hearing about pan-geographic. I just think it's a marketing thing because if 90% of your business or 95% of your business is 1A, 1B. If you practice medicine in the United States. Yeah. I mean, why do you care? You know, not everybody. Well, we're. No, no, no. But the thing is, I keep hearing this pan-geographic, but I'm like, that's a marketing no, thing. No, well, it's, it's all right. So here's what I think. Really here, here's where I think we're headed. Um, that's correct. You, you are you are correct that um, for an individual case like this, when you know what the genotype is already, um, then you would treat uh, appropriately. And I think in this case, answer five is a good answer, and you know a lot of people would use that. The the pan genotypic I think is more futuristic focused than today. So for example. Let's say we have um, Incredivir, Incredivir, okay? It does everything, all right? Omnivir. Better than Deplorivir. Yeah, better than Deplor, <laughs> or a basket full of Deplorivirs. Um, you know, we've got a basket full of Incredivirs. So let's say it's, a, it's, it's, it's 98, 99% effective against every genotype, okay? Regardless of cirrhosis. Then there could be a day where we don't even check the genotype. Well, here's, I think what's more important is as we think about, you know, it was very interesting that people who are going to treat more people. So, okay, right now we treat people who are 95% or above in adherence. But a lot of people with Hep C aren't necessarily like an HIV, right? They're not going to be 95% adherent by the nature of whatever. So in HIV, now you can never be adherent because you can, you can be 65 to 70% adherent on an HIV regimen well, yeah, yeah. So, and like the lessons from from HIV, the adherence is almost directly related to tolerability, right? So, if you give somebody medicine, makes them feel bad, they're going to skip to it. So, so some, you know, Hep C. So, you, they still might, might have mental, there might be mental health issues in certain. Sure, sure, sure. And there might be social issues. Yeah. So those those factors, not just, but I don't know if we're going to get everybody. To 95% versus how about if we treat like we treat yeah. HIV closer to 65%? Well, I don't know that that number is known for Hep C yet, but I will say, and, and Mike can comment as well, that the real world, if you will, studies that have been published so far show pretty consistent outcomes. They're very similar. In other words, the effectiveness studies, which is real world versus efficacy, are pretty much on par. So even if there are some misdoses, which I suspect there are more in the real world, if you will, than there was in the, in the study, although people misdoses there too, there may be some degree of forgivability that we just don't know what that is yet. I've so, got, got a couple of things here. One is that our pantosphere is more potent than the diposphere, hence my 
no question about the front. The efficacy is actually pretty similar for this particular phenotype. And for the characters on which we add dose of say 23 to 40 milligrams once a day, the efficacy is fine. Uh, yeah. It seemed like, if I remember correctly, there's about a 37% reduction in area under the curve or something. You may go into that exactly. But. So, so why, so, I mean, this is an interesting question. She's taking the meprazole twice a day. Really no, no. Right. Right. Which, or get them off or get her down to once a day. And this is over the counter, so it's not like it's, yeah. Okay, well, good. And then, so, a lot of people may, this, this combo has struggled um, in terms of preference, partly because of the ritonavir, and he previously because twice a day, but now with the once a day, we'll see if it makes somewhat of a comeback. But I think some of the differentiation here is going to be what what can the pay, what will the payer pay for, and you know, yeah, you said the payer. Ah, we're going to talk about option one. Eight weeks, right? Boy, that's attractive, price-wise. That's the third less. We're going to talk. Let's go right to those days. It's a great segue. I'm oh, sorry. No. <laughs> All right. So there, there's, um, this is, the eight weeks is um, a, a source of ongoing discussion. And I'm going to try to give you as balanced an answer as I can. Because uh, I can see both sides. So here we go. I think, whoops, sorry. So what would you, we already talked about that. Um, Softlet, these are just more data slides. I'm not going to bore you. Just focus on 99%, uh, especially for the 1Bs. Um, the cirrhosis, uh, not quite as good, but we didn't talk about that yet. So the duration in considered Less than six million um, can be considered for eight weeks if you want. So let's look at the data here. IN3, cirrhosis was excluded. Relapses were four to five percent in the eight week arm um, and one percent in the 12 week arm overall. Okay? And here are, you look at it here. Here's eight weeks, 12 weeks. It's, it's similar, right? Um, but when you start boiling it down, this was a post hoc analysis where less than 6 million, 2 of 123, 2 of 131, looking pretty good for eight weeks, right? So that's where you kind of get the idea that that might be okay. And the HCVNRA greater, 9 out of 92 versus 1 out of 85. So I think everyone agree viral load less than 6 million would be an entry for consideration above that, probably not. And so hers was 2.3 million, if I remember correctly. Um, sorry, I just jumped to this. Uh, these are the few studies I had on Velpatosphere. This is where they combined Astral 1, 2, and 3 together. The bottom line is it, seemed, it worked just as well with or without ribavirin, and uh, so it's pretty much used without. And this is one of the few slides I'll show on Velpatosphere because you can only show something that works well. So it just basically works, I think, is a take-home point. 
for treatment naive and treatment experience, you're in the 96 to 99 percent overall rate. I think I thought I was going to get to this earlier. Let me skip to this is Paratap uh, Prod. More of the same here. These are just data slides. I wanted to get to. Sorry. Ah. Dang. Well. Where I was going with this was that there, there are some data when you look really deep into the, um, into the studies. First off, to my knowledge yet, and there may be ongoing, there's not a study that a priori segregates with an 8 versus 12. And there are a lot of the experts in HCV who are a little bit nervous about the 8 weeks because if failure happens, then you're going to end up with an NS5A. I think it's later in my slide deck that we get to that. I'm sorry. I'm misremembering how I organize this. Um, but but let's bookmark. I don't know, Mike, if you, you have comments on yeah, 8 versus 12. To real-world studies on this target, which is dozens of centers uh, should, where people are using 8 weeks, which for the record is not a recommendation. It's from the guidelines to specify 12. But the data from the target group is actually pretty encouraging people getting 8 weeks if they meet those criteria that do well. TRIO, which is another uh, marketing group, same thing. Uh, so I think it's okay. Uh, the, the catch is, and the other good thing is that people who relapse following eight weeks do very well with a 12-week plus five or higher, almost 100% through rate. So there's not too much danger. The biggest danger is they may not get access to that second round of therapy. There's only so much direct action that those kind of people can have. So what, what to do then um, when this happens, right, you'll maybe prescribe 12 weeks of soft lead, and CVS calls in this case and says, we'll approve you for eight weeks because the viral load is 1B and the viral load is 2.1 million. What, what it, Tim, what do you say? Uh, yeah, I, I get mad. I pound the desk, <laughs> you know. But it could be okay. Yeah, could what, be what are you going to? So I, I fight back. So, And how'd she do? She was cured. Okay. So what I say when I get that situation, I say, okay, I'll roll with you, but you've got to right now promise me approval for the 12 weeks with ribavirin if the failure happens. But you can't get to somebody. So is that your policy? No. But it should be, right? So you can write that down. And, yeah. So I think it's okay. And cost-effectiveness-wise, it probably is wise. Right? It, it just make it as a, as a policy to reassure the providers who push back. If that's going to be the policy for cost savings, you save a third of the cost by definition. And if you're going to get 90 plus percent, maybe 95 percent success, well then what's the harm of going off and curing them later with another round of 12 weeks with ribavirin? Yeah, Michelle. Yeah, the F3 brings, so that gets back to the Ken Sherman comment, right? That gets back to the Ken Sherman comment that when, it, when a liver becomes uh, cirrhotic, 
uh, it's harder through the sinusoids for drugs to make it to all the tissue lit areas. And so longer treatment is required. So for cirrhosis, nobody would, remember in that one study we quoted, cirrhosis was excluded, right, IN3. So with cirrhosis or something close to it, you're probably going to lean, and that might be the place where you might push back. Because F3, you know, it's, it's, if you did a biopsy, if you actually looked at the whole liver, if you did an MRE, maybe you'd see it was actually F4. It's, it's, in the clinical trials, the F3s, which had to have things like normal platelet counts, that they did just as well as the F012s. Okay. Okay, but if the if the platelet count is below what 140, below normal. I, I, I anything below normal, you would push for 12 weeks. Okay, that's a good rule. Yep. Yeah. So the data get right. So let's, let, I think what we're, the reason we're having trouble, we had the real world data that was just quoted. I think we, what we were looking for is a prospective randomized study that shows no difference. And then this goes off the table, right? Then, then, then we're there. And those studies, as I understand it, are underway, certainly are planned, probably underway already. So that would, that would help us all, right? Okay. So, again, I'm not going to sit here and go through the data too specifically except to say that based on um, data for 1A, 1B, cirrhotic, non-cirrhotic, the, the, the recommendations change. Um, eight weeks here with semeprevir does not work as well. All right, so let's change the case. What would you choose if she were treatment experienced with cirrhosis? And hear what I mean with cirrhosis and treatment experience was with PEG-RIBA before, not a prior DAA. All right, PEG-RIBA experience and now, um, now cirrhotic. So you've got no eight weeks, right? 12 weeks with or without ribavirin, 12, 16 weeks with ribavirin. Uh, it's still 1B, still 1B, um, and I probably should, option 9, look it up on the website, which would be, which would be fair. Whoops. Uh-oh. Mm. Let's try. Whoops. What do I do? Okay, I think I messed it up. So there, there are more than one correct answer here, right? There's lots of things that you can do. There's a couple of answers that you might not do, right? that nobody went with four, right, because you don't need ribavirin in that setting. Um, 
So the comments about uh, 12 weeks of, now this is 1B with cirrhosis, prior treatment. To be honest, I don't remember what the rule is for, off the top of my head, for albospheric catheter for 12 weeks, whether you have to go to 16 weeks. I had to look it up, to be honest with you, which is part of what I wanted to do in this session, was to say I can't, keep, can't remember all this stuff either. So I think it's okay to look stuff up. Um, but, but what we do know for sure is that Vilpatistor sulfosphagor typically does not require ribavirin in that setting, especially for 1B. Um, these are the data with soft lead, um, with or without cirrhosis, 99%, and non-cirrhotics, 97%. Uh, again, pretty, pretty good outcome. Um, experience with cirrhosis, you want to add the ribavirin. And for 1B, I think 12 weeks is usually sufficient. Um, this is the experience study uh, IN2 uh, for genotype 1 and looking at uh, 12 versus 24 weeks. There were, this is where you'll see the null responder references, right, because those historically have been more difficult to treat interferon uh, non-responders at all. And 20% had cirrhosis. Whoops. And here are the results. And they're pretty good, right? 24 weeks with RIBA, but I think the 12 weeks with RIBA um, certainly would be okay. And with 1B, you, it's more on the, on the, on the cusp of uh, it, the nuances are important here. Um, what's the role of duration in ribavirin and treatment experience cirrhotic patients? Uh, again, this is a study with soft lead and... Uh, but all had failed peg riba and then peg riba and a PI, typically either bisepravir or telaprevir, which we don't see used anymore. Um, and again, success rates between uh, plus minus and 12 versus 24 weeks with or without ribavirin, similar. And pretty good. This is uh, velpatosphere. And this is that combination of all three astral studies. And again, these data speak for themselves. This is well over 1,000 patients uh, in different groups. And treatment experience didn't matter. And cirrhosis didn't seem to matter. Although a little bit less, but not bad, 96%. Uh, so I'm going to go through these kind of quickly here. All right, let's move to the next case. So we have a 59-year-old Hispanic male type 2 diabetes, hypertension, genotype 1A, treated with peg riba for his HCV with a null response. Biopsy prior to therapy showed 5-6, which is Ishak scoring, which same as Metavir 4. Um, no history of decompensation, so child A. History of heavy ethanol, which has been significantly decreased since he was, uh, his attempted treatment of cure. Um, he's 6.2 million, AST and ALT are elevated, uh, albumin 3.7, INR is 1.1, so what would we guess? It's MELD score to be about 12 to 15, something like that, creatinine 1.1. So what additional testing is needed 
we, this is like a reinforcement of what we heard from Dr. Charlton earlier. So let's see what the group says. It's either hepatocellular screening with alpha-feta protein, hepatocellular screening imaging uh, with ultrasound, uh, transient elastography to confirm the cirrhosis, EGD to evaluate for varices, uh, or just uh, one, two, four, or two and four. Go ahead and vote. Beautiful. Great. We didn't talk much about alpha-feta protein. Um, I guess that's because you don't order it very much, or do you? The answer would be what you would have expected to say everyone should get it, and we don't. Right. So it's, it's not a requirement. There is a, an emerging test, which is an test, which incorporates alpha-feta protein, DCT, they've got age, BMI, gender, and that's got a, an AUC of 0.92. So we may be bringing that back. I have not been checking it, but then again, most of the people like this, I would have referred to hepatology anyway, just for no other reason to get the EGD, which everybody seemed to want. Uh, in this case, transient elastography to confirm, probably don't need it because you have a biopsy from 09-ish, if I remember the date right, um, that showed he had cirrhosis, and that's not going to spontaneously reverse. So we know where he is. Uh, but the EGD, very important, and the hepatocellular cancer, we've beaten that uh, up pretty good. All right, so now, again, cirrhosis, prior treatment, twice, if I remember correctly. Um, so what do you want to use at this point? Um, give you a little time to read all these things and digest them. Um, or you have an option to test here. Go ahead and vote. Climb up the telephone pole and call Ed. Remember? Yeah. Only the older people recognize that. Okay. All right, so most people went with some degree of soft valve. What about testing for NS5A? He didn't have any exposure. Is it possible? It is possible. It's not something that you might expect, but a lot of folks might go ahead and check because of the prior treatment can start to screen out or push forward for NS5A. Um, you can get this uh, through LabCorp or Quest um, and for genotype 1A and B and now genotype 3. If it comes back, we'll talk a little bit more about these resistance-conferring mutations, but this is a Q30R, uh, which affects both rodiposphere and ombidosphere. Um, and more of the same if it's an M28B. This is a wonderful little graph. This is David Wiles put together. Um, complicated, but what... It's, it's sort of nice because it's a stoplight map of the different mutations that can come up that give you NS5A resistance. And the, the theory here, and I think I have a slide that shows how this happens, but the, the repeated exposures, especially to DAAs, even if they're not NS5A, can induce a, re, a resistance variant just to appear uh, um, 
is one of the concerns, and but certainly prior use of any NS5A is a concern. And these are some of the newer drugs. This is the Achillean drug, and here's a new Abbott drug, and here's a new Merck drug, uh, which are looking better as far as these resistance patterns, in particular this one. So there is hope on the horizon, like we used to have in HIV. Remember when you know, drug X for protease was now better than drug Y that led to resistance and all that. Um, Vilpatosphere is, is generally better, for example, um, uh, than Lodiposphere, uh, which is up on the top. So everything's kind of improving and heading in the right direction. This is what I was talking about earlier. For 1A, all it takes is one nucleus. So this is a non-synonymous change, which means that the, um, uh, the nucleotide change from, uh, to, from G to A does lead to a protein change. So it's non-synonymous means that you get a change and there's no change, which is like here. So you go from C to A and you still have the same protein. Okay, and then you go from A to double A, and now you get a change. So that's the two-step for 1B versus the one-step that's commonly seen for 1A. And this, that two-step doesn't happen all that often, which is why you aren't as concerned about it for 1B. Uh, so um, you get this result back. There was a beautiful cartoon that I thought I'd included, but shows how the previous exposure, even though it wasn't 5A, could lead to this. And it probably is worth knowing that before you treat. Um, it's not all that common, but it's common enough where a lot of the mavens and resistance are recommending that. So now that you know that there's a 131, uh, or sorry, a 31, what would you go ahead and and recommend this. Remember, this is 1A. Uh, you've got some 5A trouble. I didn't put Velpatosphere up here, sorry. Okay, so I think, again, Velpatosphere might be the choice here. Sorry, I, I, I missed this um, in preparing the slides, but you're thinking about the right way that you really need, whenever you have 5A resistance, take-home points are you want to add ribavirin for the most part, and you might want to treat a little bit longer in general. Just And, and right now when you look at the guidelines, uh, it's kind of buried way at the bottom of the page. So you, if you go to the guidelines that say treatment experience, patients what to use and in the case of resistance so it starts off with peg ribo resistance and ends up at the bottom with 5a and it basically says this and says add ribavirin and treat for up to 24 weeks is typically it and vilpatosphere out of the ones that are on the market is probably the one that you might want to choose as opposed to the others for f5a okay We're going to talk more about the roles in renal failure and that type of thing later. Um, so there, again, this is way too kind of complicated. 
The resistance when you do see it uh, is a predictor, uh, especially when um, uh, for Grisepivir and Elvisvir, uh, you want to make sure that um, if there is an NS5A baseline, um, you want to, it does affect its overall effectiveness. Robivirin use is important. So a lot of the things we've already said. And this is more about grisaprevir. Um, again, in treatment experience, people, um, you're going to get a little bit better efficacy when you use robivirin. Here's the uh, partial responders. That this is um, the proportion of people that um, were cirrhotic uh, or null. Adding the robivirin and going for 16 weeks improves outcome. So this is, again, I'm going to skip through this. Um, let me just get to the next case because I think, here we go. So if there are no RABs and they are treatment experienced and cirrhotic, does it change what you would do for any of these guys? Um, let's just go ahead and vote and we'll have a discussion about it. Okay, so no RAVs, 1A, but experienced. Um, what do you all think? So 12, 24 weeks here got a lot of votes, but the robivirin adding to it is, is pretty good for soft lead. You could probably get by with uh, Valpatosphere, Sofosbuvir, and a 12-week here would probably work. I might have leaned more here in a cirrhotic patient for 1A with no RAVs personally. Um, uh, although you know, we could get by. So, thoughts on this generally? Michael, what would you choose in this setting? So, the story is 1A, you know, treatment experience, no RAPs. Cirrhotic. Yeah. Yep. What about Propatosphere in that setting? Would you add without Ribavirin? You don't need Ribavirin. Well, those are the kind of the points I want to make. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah. So it was an extremely low dose, so we fought back and we're like, is 200 milligrams of ribavirin enough a day ah. to not extend it? What was the creatinine? And um, it was, they were co like compensated, creatinine was normal, but that she had, she had two previous hospitalizations for anemia. Uh huh. And like two prior failed responders, no really rab issues. But I was like, it was only 200 a day. So yeah. So the good news is in clinical trials, the dose regimes of patients, including at 200 milligrams, they did just as well. That's the amazing thing. So if, 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 if somebody turns out maybe just fine. 
Okay. And if you have any doubt, you can actually measure uh, ribavirin levels. Mayo Clinic has uh, a drug monitoring uh, lab for ribavirin. And you, you'll probably find that patient had in the therapeutic range for so, so as an ID doc, I was late to the ribavirin game. These guys have been doing it for a long time. And in particular, your sites use the really decompensated liver patients where 200 milligrams was used often, actually, or low doses. And my sense is, see if you agree with this, is that the toxicity of anemia is a surrogate for drug level. Right? So if they're having anemia even at 400, that means you're getting, or 200, you're getting good enough levels for the antiviral effect. So that, yeah, you should feel better. Yeah. So, yeah, the, yeah so that, that I think it's fine. And in fact, we probably overdosed a lot of people on ribavirin. A lot of people. And, and the, the anemia is our way of screaming back, that's too much. And you, you should dose reduce. And I wonder, you know, maybe studies in the future, maybe we'll never need ribavirin again. I think that's probably going to be the case at some point. But if we were going to continue using it, I would like to see studies that just start with 600 only. And I bet it does about as well as the 1,200 or 1,000. It's very consistent that patients with cirrhosis get more than about another gram drop on average compared to patients without cirrhosis. And what I think is happening, if ribavirin is being overcritical, Okay, so I think the better part of valor for me right now, it's already noon, and I know we want to get through other talks. So I, I think I've made the points that I wanted to make, even though it's a little bit sloppy in places. I forgot to add the Valpatis here. I apologize. But the, the take-home point is everything's got to be individualized. And uh, the point made earlier by Tim that, that you know, pangene-type might be okay for the general comment, but for individual patients, it's an individual choice. And all the things that we take into account today are genotype, uh, prior treatment, presence or not of resistance-associated mutations, especially in those previously treated, and uh, the degree of, of fibrosis, et cetera. So those are the things that we're working on now. Uh, and genotype 1A is more challenging than 1B. And the ribavirin point, I'm really glad you brought that up because that, that is a really key point. So why don't I stop there? Charlie, are you, should we take the lunch break real I quick?